Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf, I am your host, and I am here in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK, our special hidden studios, where I am joined by Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University and David Sanger of the New York Times, who has brought with him a boatload of his new book, The Perfect Weapon. Uh, And speaking of perfect weapons, off in Aspen, Colorado, (laughs) um, is the fabulous Corey Shockey, um, who is rubbing elbows with the world's elite uh, at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Corey, don't do that. That's not a good idea. It's very unsanitary. Yeah, it's unhygi- mm-hmm. un- unhygienic. I it was the modern version of handshaking, yeah. Rosa. Do, no, no, no. It's, people cough into their elbows. Do not rub them. Yeah, that's uh, true. Okay, thanks. Good tip. Elite elbows are especially dirty icky, elbows. Icky, really icky. Uh, um, now, you know, out in the world this week, of course, there's Donald Trump. There's problems on the border. There's... Um, uh, trade wars brewing, there's problems in the Middle East, there's North Korea. But of course, the most important thing that's happened this week is that David's book, The Perfect Weapon, has come out to wide acclaim. Yay! <laughs> um, and by wide acclaim, your wife loves it, your kids love it. Corey said something nice about it on TV the other day. Corey, Corey yeah. has said something nice. Uh, although you... I am a little disappointed, as I just told David, that there are no pictures why not the stock so there, photo? Of there's a picture a of David in a hoodie, David. Yeah, we're gonna do it... <laughs> we're gonna do a picture book version later on. I would appreciate for the executive that. Branch. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And it's part of the president's daily brief, right? And so we want to cut to the important questions. And Corey raises an important one. In order to infiltrate this community, did you have to wear a hoodie for a year and a half? You know, I, I didn't wear a hoodie. I did drink a lot of of Coke Zero, but I think hackers drink Diet Coke, right? Or really, no, they drink they drink they drink Red Bull. No, <laughs> but I have been for six days. For six bit days, I've been on on book tour, and I was in New York and San Francisco, Boston. And what happens when you're on book tour now is that deep state nerds come up to you with questions with a copy of the book to be signed. And we're slowly taking over so all of America. Great. It's so great. So my favorite came in San Francisco. So this guy comes up to me and he says, you're always making fun of Rothkoff for being such an old guy. He said, <laughs> how old is Rothkoff? And I said, he's ageless. Excellent. I said, it's, it's okay. Oh, I said, it's wow. I, I said it's kind of like Mel Brooks in you know the six million dollar, and no. then it gets two thousand year old man. Mel Brooks was not in the six million dollar man. <laughs> Clearly, David is looking to be our fearless leader's favorite. Of favorite, yeah. of us. right? But then Wait, he said, yeah, it gets just better. Right, yeah. He said, and how old is Corey? <laughs> oh. And I. 
And I said, I said, 29. Oh, excellent. So you are now not only David Rothkopf's favorite of the group, you are also mine. I said, you can't laugh like that after you're 30. <laughs> right. That's why the rest of us just, we just have a hollow chuckle. <laughs> right. Um, well, because I'm still recovering from my sore throat, I feel I've got a great kind of smoker's laugh going on right now. No, no, you sound good compared to the way you sounded a couple weeks ago. Much better. Excellent. Glad no, you, to hear it. You said it's all that good living out there. Clean mountain in, air. In Colorado. Absolutely right. I went for a hike and a run already. Well, that, that is fantastic. And thank you for doing that on our behalf. <laughs> so we didn't have to. Um, anyway, David, so you've been out there touring about on your book. Uh, but for our readers, by the way, we've gotten... 10 copies of this book autographed by you, which we are going to give out to our readers, but we're going to have to figure out what it is they have to do in order, in to, order get to get the, get the, the 10 copies. Well, one thing is maybe demonstrate that they know how to read. No, well, no, all of our readers are extremely, never make fun of the deep state radio nerds. They are extremely, extremely um, well-read and literate. literate. Yes. Maybe uh, they have to launch an offensive cyber operation. That would be good. They could pick like a state. That yeah. They could, yeah, that yeah. would be it. Yeah. A successful offensive cyber operation. And then prove and then, that it was theirs. Yes. Yeah. Rosa, right. you are an evil genius. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. This is how some movie starts. And then some nerd someplace shuts down Ohio. And it's on us. No, right? no, no. They need to launch a cyber operation against uh, some entity outside of the United States. Let uh -huh. me specify that. Oh, well, that's. Yeah. That's much, not Ohio. Yeah. yeah, or on the Sanger home in Vermont. Yeah. <laughs> Which the Sanger in Vermont is home. Talk about disconnected from the internet. You got to go through the cow to get to the router. You know? <laughs> You're safe. Oh, I love that. Well, but that's one of the points in your book, right? That the only way to be truly safe is to be off the net, right? Well. The Iranians thought they were truly safe with their centrifuges because they kept those off the net, and it didn't stop the NSA from and the Israelis because that from would, they use thumb, thumb drives, drives on sneaker net, right? Right. Yeah, to to move across. This, this was this but, was my takeaway. This is an important takeaway for all of our listeners: is 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 beware of Greeks bearing thumb drives and yes. anybody else bearing thumb drives. Throw out the goddamn thumb drive. If you get a free thumb drive, and actually it was great because we got to Singapore. And we got in, and 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 the Singaporean government had uh, these little fans that you could plug in Ooh. to your iPhone, right? And allegedly just to be powered by the iPhone, and that was that was a Singaporean. So yeah, um, so there was no, there was wow. no North Korean thumb drives. Yeah. Right. <laughs> maybe there were. I, I wasn't using them. Um, no, but it is a big lesson of the book that one of the reasons that cyber is such a great leveler and one of the reasons that it is the perfect weapon for smaller states is that it's very hard to strike back in kind from a disconnected state. And there's somebody in the intelligence community quoted in the in the book that said, you know, how okay, you, you can tell us who yes, I can, certainly right. could <laughs> uh, saying, how do you unplug North Korea? Right. So if you're going to do something to North Korea in response to the Sony hack or want cry or any of these other things, you're going to have to think of something outside the cyber realm, which is fine, except we've tried just about everything else outside the cyber realm, sanctions and so forth. So, it you know, the way the airplane was a leveling 
uh, kind of weapon when it came up. It wasn't terribly expensive to build. You could figure it out. Lots of countries got got airplanes soon after uh, the Germans, the French, and the U.S. Uh, had them. Um, with cyber, we've gone to 30 or 40 countries that have significant cyber capability in 10 years. But think the nuclear weapon has been around since 1945. We only have nine nuclear states. So cheap, easy entry is a key element of it. Well, and also, I mean, with, with, with cyber weapons... It, with those 30 countries, we still don't have a doctrine of deterrence. Um, th- so they feel a little bit more um, uh, secure. And with a cyber attack, even a very um, small initiative from one or two people could have a very big effect. Right? That's, so- ab- that's absolutely right. And we don't, you know, we keep talking about building up our big arsenal of cyber weapons, and we have the biggest and meanest in the world, of the Chinese and the Russians are right behind us, and the Iranians and the North Koreans behind them. What we're missing is a strategy for how to go use them. And so one of the big lessons that came out of the reporting for the book, and it was a a few years' uh, work on the book, was essentially this, that you can have the biggest arsenal in the world, but if your target area of your own country is expanding as fast as ours is with autonomous vehicles, with everything going on the Internet, with your refrigerator on the Internet, with your Alexa in the in the living room, and you can say to it, please play Corey's Laugh, and it will play Corey's Laugh, for example. Wow, I'd like to do that, yeah. actually. Um, so uh, with all of those things, while we are getting better at cybersecurity, the the problem is expanding faster than we're getting better. And this has paralyzed American leaders. And the biggest example of this, and it's the one we forget in the politicization of this, is President Obama in dealing with the Russia hack. The, the book delineates a lot of ideas that were circulating around the White House and the State Department about how to deal with Putin. Cut him off from the world financial system, expose his uh, connections to the oligarchs, freeze his accounts. And with every one of them, President Obama came back and said, well, this is a great idea, guys. So and then what? And then Election Day comes and he's messed with the election machines, the registration system, just enough to play into Donald Trump's narrative that this thing is rigged and make it look like Hillary Clinton didn't get elected legitimately. Well, there was a mistake somewhere in that logic train. I can't find it, but there was one in there someplace. And the fact of the matter is that uh, in the in the end, he decided not to do a thing until after the election because he was afraid of Russian escalation over which we had no defenses. Okay. This sounds like an opportunity for Corey to say something about the Obama administration. Go ahead. <laughs> I thank you, David, for giving me the opportunity this time to fire this salvo on which I think you and I are in complete agreement, which is that um, President Obama doing nothing not only failed to defend the United States, but also set he encouraged hostage taking in the future. This is a terrible way to manage that threat. And for, you know, Ben Rhodes and company, let me just say, it was not impossible to figure out how to solve this problem. The candidate for president of France figured out how to solve this problem, which is the way that you deal with the potential for cyber malfeasance 
is to publicize the likelihood of cyber malfeasance and start um, taking undertaking ways to protect yourself better, not to say, oh, wow, this is the Wild West. So I think if I don't draw attention to myself as a target, no Indians or gunfighters are going to find me, which is what the Trump, which is what the Obama administration did on this. It was a terrible mistake. And it is and it is and it has haunted them. I mean, the Obama administration's handling of the Russia hack um, and investigations related to that hack is going to turn out, I think, to be one of the black marks on their record, no? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, when you think about, well, why did Hillary Clinton lose the election? Obviously, a fair amount of blame goes to Hillary Clinton herself and to the campaign, uh, which mishandled lots of things, including mishandling their own response to the Hillary Clinton email server issue and the you know, Hillary Clinton's sort of long-standing inability to just say, "Yeah, we really screwed that one up. Sorry, sorry, sorry," and you know, she hedged forever, and that that was that was a part of it. But 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 I I think in hindsight, no question about it, that the Obama administration's sort of failure to respond in an appropriate way to Russian interference. Uh, is is going to it, it seems clear that that was another major contributing factor uh, to Clinton's loss, uh, not to mention, you know, sort of setting things up, ironically, in a way that made it possible for for Trump himself to claim that, you know, he was meddled with, which is nonsense, et cetera. But but enough people believe it. And and, and I think that if they had taken it on, I think Corey's absolutely right. I think if they had if they had taken it on in a direct way and said, Everybody, here's what we think is happening. Here's what we think is going to happen. Here's what you need to be aware of and alert to that, that, you know, the media would have picked that up, that there would have been much more. People would have fought back in the best way possible, which is a combination of being aware themselves and and a combination. You know, I think I think it's almost certain that we would have had little watchdog groups of ordinary people popping up saying, hey, this fat Facebook ad looks dubious. Hey, this seems to be a bot. You know, and, and maybe that would have been enough to make a difference. You know, unknowable, um, but, but no question, you know, I think Syria and the failure to respond on Russian election interference, my guess is that if you think about, you know, two things that in 20 years from now we'll still look back on and say that's where the Obama administration really, really missed an opportunity, really screwed up. Well, that and the tan suit. And the tan suit. Oh, God, yes. Yeah, no, that, was a, that was a big burden. <laughs> so, so let, me, let me just pick up on this point for one moment because the, um, the book tr- takes this back, this practice back before the hack on the DNC. I mean, what's important to remember is the Russians came in before the DNC hack into the White House system, the State Department system, and the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Joint Chiefs was about the same time as the DNC hack. In each of those cases, the Obama administration knew they were in, fought them. In the case of the White House, this, the book lays out a two-week-long battle with the Russians to get them out of the unclassified email system, where the Russians just kept coming back in, not because they needed to, but just because they wanted to they, show that they could. They could yeah. Right. Okay. Right. So, so it was all this shadow boxing of coming back in. In each of those cases, I went around to the administration and said, look, it's clear to me what's happening here. It's clear to me who's doing it. They would not talk about the Russians on the record 
as the offender. So if you're Vladimir Putin and you're watching this go on, you're saying, okay, so they're not going to defend the White House and call me out about it in public. Who's going to care about the DNC, which is essentially staffed by college kids, right? So Sucker college kids right? who, <laughs> so, who fell for a fishing operation right. that I happen to know from experience. You know, I mean, one of the things, I think you and I talked about it at the time, they went out to a number of places at that time, yeah. including Foreign Policy Magazine, where I work, yeah. the Council on Foreign Relations, a whole bunch of other places, which didn't fall for the fishing operation that the DNC did. Yeah, the, so I know some institutions that did. A lot of these were watering hole attacks, which is to say that they know like the members of the Council on Foreign Relations or something else are people who they want to get at and they try to do it through this organization. We'll know we've made it when the Russians decide that deep state radio is worth hacking. Impossible. Yeah. Because uh, we have had North Korean designers <laughs> do all of our technology. <laughs> I've noticed. <laughs> it's Ian, almost up to that quality. Ian Enright, our producer, has actually served in the North Korean armed forces. You know, the part that bothers me about Ian is that he still insists on wearing that damn uniform while he's in the in the studio here. No, I like it. It adds a certain flavor. The, the, the stars? It's right. a Kim Jong-un haircut that gets to me. Yeah, what I love is that, is that is, yes, that's he true. sends us notes in these giant envelopes. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's terrible. I hate that because it makes my hands look so small. Yeah. Right. Um. <laughs> but anyway, the point here is that, ha- oh, and the point I make in the book is we missed many signals. One of them was the Russian attacks on Ukraine, where they the, the chapter on Ukraine is called Putin's Petri Dish, and it's everything they did to us, they tried first in Ukraine. Then we missed the opportunity to call them out on the White House and the State Department and the Joint Chiefs. And then we missed the opportunity at the DNC. That's three times in a row. Well, I think there's actually a fourth time in a row. And you know, one of the things, this is a Great book. I haven't finished the book, but I've read a lot of the book and I've been going through it. And there is a quality, and I don't think it actually came through in the New York Times review of the book, of great reporting, bringing this to life, bringing this great story to life. And one of the things that strikes me is the hack of the DNC, the information operation against the United States government, is perhaps you know one of the great pivotal moments of our time. And cyber, therefore, and information warfare ought to be front burner on everybody's mind because there's an election in a few months and it can happen again. And your book frames this issue. But when I looked at the sections, I kept thinking, what are we doing? Yeah, well, here's here's what we're we're doing. We're not doing anything. So so John Bolton came into the National Security Council and the first thing he did was in two days, he got rid of the Homeland Security Advisor, Tom Bossard, who was one of the few people who'd been in doing cyber stuff from the from the early days of the Bush administration or mid days of the Bush administration. Then he eliminates the role of the cybersecurity coordinator because clearly we were over-coordinated in the U.S. government on this issue. <laughs> and, right. Can't and, have that. <laughs> and, and that person, Rob Joyce, who went back to the NSA, had actually run the unit of the NSA called the Tailored Access Operations Unit that breaks into foreign 
computer systems. So it's the first time anybody with an offensive understanding was in that job. And, you know, it's important to have an, somebody with an offensive understanding because their understanding of defense is going to be a whole lot different if they spent their life breaking into foreign systems. Right? It's exactly what you want, right? And that's why, you know, bank robbers get hired as consultants to <laughs> deal with bank robbers, right? Bank robbers. So um, uh, this administration started off in a better place than they are in today on these issues. It's gotten worse. It's because these people are out. Right. Right. So, so because what, they hired the right people at the beginning. How, how do you make sense of this? I mean, I mean, we, we've we've proffered on Deep State Radio various uh, more and less paranoid theories about what is going on in the White House, and and this one seems like presumably Donald Trump is not waking up saying. I need to make some adjustments to staff assignments in the NSC. He's busy doing something else like watching watching Fox and tweeting and so forth. So, John Bolton, why? why? What, what is he thinking? What's, what, what is your hypothesis on the thought process there? So for the first one, which was the Homeland Security Advisor. I mean, I realize that the entire Homeland Security apparatus in the United States has been retooled to address the threat of five-year-olds from Honduras coming yeah. across no, the border. It's the whole baby MS-13 right. brigades right. that are infiltrating Syrian America. children's choirs. You've got to watch out for those kids. Yeah, I understand they're busy. And the former Secretary General of NATO. We have to keep him out of <laughs> yeah. That's right. Uh, definitely. Um, I think the answer to this is that the Homeland Security Advisor, at least under the structure that uh, President Bush had set up mm-hmm. and President Obama set up, had direct access to the president right. anytime they wanted walking right on a, in. On a par with the uh, National Security Advisor. And in fact, a, a report that uh, President Obama commissioned to leave to his successor mm-hmm. in the last year, which was a committee that the former head of IBM and, and Tom Donilon, the former National Security Advisor, left, actually said these positions should be elevated, including mm-hmm. the cyber position, to basically sort of equivalent to the National right. Security Advisor. I don't think that was John Bolton's idea of. So he just how didn't want any competition. I, basically, I, this I was all about John Bolton. Right now, for the nat- for the cybersecurity advisor, the answer that the NSC gave us was cyber is now part of everything, as you yourself write. So we don't need a specific person for that. We're just going to do it in everything that we do. Because everybody knows how to do this. Right. Uh, you know, and, and but, but we do need a space command. We do need a space command. And we do, you know, would you would you send away somebody who did nuclear for you? You know, saying, well, nuclear deterrence underlies all of our sort of It's implied in everything implied we do. Implied in do. Of course you wouldn't. So, I mean, the argument was ridiculous. So, Corey, in, when are you going to London, David? Two weeks. I'm, I'm going on the Corey tour of how do you launch a book in British English. <laughs> he is, in fact, giving a talk at the International Institute for Strategic Studies, about which I am very excited. And will you be moderating this talk? I will indeed, David. So if you have any questions you want me to stump our dear David Sanger with, I'll be happy to take them either well, in his presence or outside Stump the chump. Stump, stump the chump. Moves to but deep state radio. <laughs> this might be a good moment. We can only aspire to be the car guys. This, this right? might be a good moment, though, to, to tell all of our listeners to this podcast that if they are in the Washington, D.C. area and they want to meet David and stump the chump in person, that they can go to Politics and Prose bookstore on Connecticut 
Market Avenue uh, on this Thursday, June 28 Yay! at 7 p.m. and yeah. meet David and ask him whatever they've secretly been wanting to ask. And including him how year. old Rothkopf is. And right. by the way, <laughs> in front of his family. So, right. you know, be nice. <laughs> be, be respectful um, uh, and give him... But always a, have a plan to kill him, as I said. Uh, yeah. <laughs> wow. Corey spends wow. too much time wow. with, she, with Marines. She is really on the dark side. Um, but never cross Corey Shaka, guys, in case, in, cl- in case that wasn't clear enough. Um, she will kill you. She will kill you with that laugh. Um, so, Corey, when David gets there, what what are you going to ask him? I mean, what what do you think is going to be important? I mean, we're we're talking here about the U.S. election cycle, but in the U.K., what do you think is going to be important uh, with regard to his book and why is it relevant there? Uh, so it's relevant everywhere because uh, the the solution set to this problem cannot be three smart people working diligently. Um, in a dark corner of the U.S. government someplace. It is actually um, getting all of us to understand what's happening, all of us to be sentinels. That doesn't mean we don't need those three geniuses working in a dark corner someplace, but it means we have, we as an American body politic have got to stop waiting for a man on a white horse to save us from President Trump's depredations or some genius somewhere to solve cyber for us. We need instead to all roll up our sleeves and figure out what's the nature of this problem? What are creative counters to it? How do all of us encourage every five-year-old in our life to start coding now so that we grow ourselves a pool of geniuses? Uh, All of the little stuff Again, it doesn't take away the central nature of government role, but it is shocking the extent to which otherwise very educated people expect somebody else to solve the cyber problem for them. So, so I will be asking David, what are the five things everybody ought to be doing to help us um, be better sentinels of what's happening and, and to help our political leaders stop being cowards about this? The, the other thing is, Um, You guys probably remember the great Ernest May, historian of Harvard, historian at Harvard. He was on the 9-11 Commission, and and, uh, Ernie was a mentor to me, and he once told me that he thinks the biggest mistake the United States government made after September 11th was saying, everybody calm down, the government's got this, instead of saying, here are the things we need your help on. Um, and, and the White House was worried that Americans couldn't be trusted to be respectful of our fellow citizens. And, and on evidence of the last 18 months, they weren't wrong to be worried about that. But the governance challenge is how do we help everybody be constructive, be useful, be uh, educated consumers so that we're not all the weak link in the chain that helps this happen to us. You know, uh, Corey's reference to Ernie May uh, is exactly right. He also taught me when I was an undergrad and was enormous help when I was writing uh, my first book on a, a different subject. And Ernie wrote a book which everybody ought to go find. It's 
probably out of print, but it's called Thinking in Time. And it's about oh, it, it's so a good. it's a really great book about the uses and misuses of historical analogy. And I often think, and as, as I was writing The Perfect Weapon, I was thinking about Ernie because cyber would be the perfect example where when we think about the deterrence issues that David's raised before, our immediate mind goes – immediately our minds go to what's translatable from nuclear deterrence to uh, cyber. And uh, all the questions that come up in nuclear deterrence are the same and every one of the answers is different. Yeah. And uh, it's different because the technology is different, because the people who can can put together the technology is much broader than uh, in the nuclear world because all the incentives are different. But I think the, the biggest point that comes out of this, when Corey asks, you know, what can people do? The answer is that there's a certain amount of cyber activity you can take care of with best practices. You know, you can get your two-factor authentication. You can make sure that you don't answer um, emails from David Rothkoff writing to you from Ethiopia asking saying that he just lost his wallet. Saying that he just needs your bank account <laughs> and, number. And would you would you would you send him ten thousand dollars to get through? He's now a Nigerian prince. Right. I was just going to say if you get an email from me saying that I'm a Nigerian prince, <laughs> right? It's not true. It's probably not true. But send me your email right. address. Or even send just me. even just saying he's a prince. You yeah. know, right? it, 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 we would be happy to have people send us ten thousand dollars. Let's just be clear. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But but okay, but that's only going to take that will take care of the the some of the criminal most of the criminal activity and the sort of malicious activity and all that. It's not going to solve the state sponsored issues, and there we need to begin to think about what our political solutions are. And at the end of the book, I go start exploring things like the idea that Brad Smith and Microsoft has had about a Geneva Convention for cyber. And what was notable about the Geneva Convention was it was not a treaty, so it didn't go through the long treaty processes. It wasn't really even put together by governments. It was organized by the Red Cross. And it began to set some standards of what you would and would not do. And not everybody abides by them. But we now have sort of an understanding that has seeped into the international uh, way of, th of thinking about this, of what kind of activity is on and off limits on the battlefield. And the question is, could you make that work in cyber? Because I'm convinced you're not going to get treaties because it's more than just states that have these. And the technology moves so quickly that by the time you got a treaty you know, through the process, it would be out of date the moment that you passed it. So we, we need to think innovatively not just about what we can do as individuals, but actually what you can begin to do to get a political understanding of what's off limits. So give you an example. Election systems, we might all decide, are off limits. Um, turning off the power against civilians and hospitals might be off limits. The problem with this is at some point in the interagency process here, someone from the intelligence community is going to stand up. And this would have been Rosa's job in her, in her old I was just time. Gonna, right? yeah. I was just going to turn to Rosa, by the way, to blow up this fantasy of yours. Right. But go on. It's, gonna, it's, going, it's going to turn to them and say, wait a minute. We don't want to sign up to a rule that we can't mess with elections. We may want to mess with an election in the future. We've done it. We did it in Italy in the 40s. We did it in Central America for forever. You know, why, why yet, stop now? It's what we do. It's what we do. We want to prevent them doing that. And we still, right. And we may well. And that's why we need to have it. That's why we need to get out of 
the trap we've built for ourselves by classifying everything around cyber and pretending you can't debate it. So, Rosa, as you think about this kind of a solution, what do you see as the potential flaws? <laughs> none. Really, there are none. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, no, I mean, I actually am inclined to agree with David um, that we, you know, there's unlikely to be any kind of formal multilateral treaty process on cyber anytime soon, partly because multilateral treaties under the best of circumstances, take forever. Even when everybody agrees, they take forever. Um, and when you're dealing with things that aren't constantly changing, that this, I do think that this is a an arena in which sort of informal rulemaking and norm setting involving private sector actors as well as governmental actors is useful. You know, it. I, I think that David is not wrong to think that you can accomplish... A lot that way. I could see that, by the way, on the paperback. David Absolutely. is not wrong. David Sanger is not wrong. Rosa Brooks. But, Rosa but, Brooks. <laughs> Maybe and, not entirely wrong. Maybe she wants well, to say. <laughs> and, and there are there are lots of historical examples of what you call. I mean, you know, lawyers call that soft law. You know, uh -huh. it's not enforceable. It's sort of norm setting. It may involve private actors that have no legal authority to bind states. Um, it may not even be legally binding on those private actors. But there are lots of historical examples of soft law sort of uh, over time gelling into so-called hard law, both domestically and in terms of, you know, becoming international treaties. The Geneva Conventions is an example, right? It starts out as this, this norm-setting exercise by private actors. Today, the Geneva Conventions are not only part of international law, they are a multilateral treaty, but they have been um, reflected into the domestic law of virtually every state around the world, including the United States. They're part of U.S. law, in effect. Um, so, so... It's not a crazy way to think about lawmaking, particularly because, you know, one of the, when you look, take an example of things like um, companies using child labor, U.S. or multinational companies that make use of child labor in making their products, right? And so you get them to come up, you get them to agree to some non-binding document that says, oh, yeah, that's not a good idea. That gives shareholders leverage to say, hey, you said you weren't going to do it, so don't do it. It gives consumers leverage, and it can eventually morph into, into business practices. It then puts pressure on other businesses that haven't signed on to sign on themselves because the businesses that have signed on don't want to face competition from people who are undercutting them by using child labor, et cetera. So, so, so there, you can start. There are a lot Lots of examples of sort of virtuous cycles beginning. Does that solve all of the problems in this arena? No, certainly not. Uh, the same way that having lots and lots of big multinationals say we won't use child labor doesn't eliminate child labor. You know, in some ways, quite similarly to this issue, you know, it's going to be the little guys who are still going to do it. You know, the, too, they're, they're too small to have shareholders and massive consumer groups that are going to keep an eye on them. Um, but I don't think that's a reason not to do it. I also think the, you know, the issue of countries, including the United States, thinking, well, wait a minute, why would we want to sign on to something if we want to be able to have our intelligence entities continuing to do it? Sort of neither here nor there. We've signed on to lots of things that our intelligence organizations pay no attention to. And one of the interesting and, and weird things about uh, espionage in particular um, is that it occupies this kind of legal netherworld as a matter of international law. It's not legal. It's not illegal. It's sort of in a black hole. But 
and that's that's sort of interesting and complicated if you're a lawyer, sort of thinking about how you make sense of these things that everybody knows are happening, everybody sort of agrees shouldn't be happening, but everybody is doing anyway. But but I think that for the very same reasons that that we're we've been perfectly comfortable signing on to international treaties that prohibit us from doing things that we know perfectly well at the time we sign on to them that we're going to continue to have our intelligence agencies do there's no particular reason to think that this would be any different that that would stop us so i you know i think the the the, the deeper dilemma is is for the reasons that david has has mentioned that doesn't stop it 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 would help a little bit but it doesn't stop either states or private entities from continuing well, to do this. And I think you know the thing that strikes me about this is it goes back to your analogy but you know we're, it's a mistake to compare this to the nuclear situation for example. Uh, it may be a mistake to try to compare this to any situation because the reality is that this is a new kind of threat where the vulnerabilities proliferate geometrically daily. And the risks, therefore, proliferate geometrically daily. And that any agreement you struck, for reasons that you've said and for reasons that Rose has said, um, is likely to be grossly inadequate. Um, and that we, we, we may have to come up with a completely different kind of paradigm because it's clear, we're going to have to live with this. We're going to have to live with lots of bad actors out there and all we're going to be able to do is reduce risk in some places rather than coming up with some sweeping cure. This is all about risk reduction. And it gets to this interesting question of how do you stop activity, most of which is happening at the subwar level. And one of the reasons deterrence is failing here is that the great super hack, the cyber Pearl Harbor that we you know would hear politicians talk about – Hasn't happened yet, fortunately. It may one day. We hope it won't. But the unplugging of America from Boston to Washington or San Francisco to L.A. has not happened because states understand that the result of that could be a military response. They also realize that one of the things that makes cyber different is that you can dial it up and dial it down, which you really can't do as much with nuclear weapons or many other weapons. You can target it precisely, and you can make it unclear, at least for a while, where it came from. And all of that is what contributes to making it the perfect weapon, because it means that you can assure, or pretty much assure, that nobody's going to fire back at you in a very significant way. And one of the things the book does is take you through hack after hack where this thought has been reinforced to the people who are doing it, that the U.S. isn't going to respond when you go after Sony because it's a private corporation. You know, they did some mild sanctions against North Korea. I doubt the North Koreans even noticed amid every other every sanction other that's, on, that's on them, right? The Iranians didn't suffer much for going in after the banks or, or messing around with a dam in Rye, New York that I used to play with play on as a 10 year old and can tell you had no water in it then and hasn't since but nobody told the iranians that <laughs> okay um, maybe they took the water away oh uh, uh, they took it so they took it away when i was a ago. very young boy they are very far-sighted <laughs> yeah, yeah right um farsi-sighted <laughs> oh. um and uh so each one of the states has calculated that this is an enormously powerful tool 
if you are going to walk up to the edge of getting a country to respond. Now, at some point, someone's going to make a miscalculation. They're going to go do something that they think will bring about no response. Yeah. And, in fact, it will. And then we're into the escalation right. ladder. Well, and I think that's the that's the thing that's scariest about all this in some ways is, is um, I'm not – that worried about the cyber Pearl Harbor for all the reasons that you just mentioned, David. That that smart states think, ooh, that would be going too far. That would bring that would bring the might of the United States down on our heads. We don't want that. Um, so they play around in this gray zone, um, and they try to do things that are going to keep stay just under the threshold of triggering a really serious military response. But precisely because nobody quite knows. What the rules are, there aren't any rules. We don't have a set of widely accepted international standards or norms. So nobody quite knows what would trigger a response and what wouldn't. Um, you know, and uh, on top of that, it's an arena in which often people don't quite know what the consequences of cyber acts will be. I mean, even the example of uh, the U.S. Um, uh, operation against Iranian centrifuges obviously ended up triggering uh, some unintended consequences uh, for actors who are sort of innocent third-party actors as well, and that's the nature of this. Is and I, you know, it's it's sort of it's fascinating, right? And it's partly because in the cyber domain, much more than in the in the domain of uh, uh, I don't even know what we call it anymore, the, the real world. Uh, where there's stuff, meat world, as they used the to call it back world. in the old days, yes. the wow. physical world. Yeah, yeah I know. Isn't that gross? That was was wasn't that? Uh, oh, I forget who it was. It was. I did not need famous that guy. Famous guy. Um, Ray who's Kroc. Blocking on. No, oh, no, 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 no. It'll come to me. Um, um, you know, in 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 the no, not Ray Crack. Um, you know, in 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 the physical world, it is. Somewhat difficult some of the time, but it's often fairly easy to distinguish between, for instance, civilian infrastructure and military infrastructure or state infrastructure versus private infrastructure. When it comes to the cyber world, those things are all mixed up. Um, and often actors, you, you know, some of the rules of the Geneva Conventions, which David mentioned earlier, for instance, right, one of the basic rules um, is that you, when you're targeting if a state is targeting during an armed conflict, you get to target military targets. You don't get to target civilian targets on purpose, right? It's a war crime. It's really bad. But in the, in the cyber domain, they're so intertwined uh, and they're often intertwined in ways that the, the actor unleashing whatever cyber tool doesn't even fully understand. So the, the possibility of having kind of unintended damage that affects parties who you didn't intend to affect is so great that, that it dramatically increases the risk that an actor will miscalculate, will do something that they, A, think will be below the threshold in terms of triggering a kinetic military response from the victim state, but B, that they genuinely don't think will affect innocent third parties, but will end up doing so. So, so the, the opportunities for mistake are, they're, are they're, enormous. They're miscalculation opportunities are big. And, you know, I, I thought a lot about what historical analogies to use in the opening and closing of this book with, with Ernie's ghost sort of uh, looming over me, Ernie May's ghost. And the one I ended up using was when Orville and Wilbur Wright showed off the airplane 
on a muddy soccer field that is now the University of Maryland's campus up at College Park. And all these army generals came up to look at this newfangled thing. And they said, this is great because we can take this airplane and put it up over the enemy troop lines and look down and see where their vulnerabilities are. And then when they come back and tell us about it, we can send the cavalry over there. And no one initially thought about (laughs) arming the airplane, okay? This was 1909. And um, so by by 1916, what was going on? We had gone from building 14 airplanes a year to building 14,000, all military, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the Red Baron was flying around. There was all kinds of fighting going on. By 1945, we combined it with a different technology to drop the atomic bomb, a utility for the airplane mm-hmm. that nobody could have imagined. I mean, when they were thinking about dropping bombs by hand, basically. So um, it's an interesting warning about what mm-hmm, happens as mm-hmm. the technology takes off. And we have to be humble in our inability to imagine how it will be used. And that's what happened in the Russia hack. We were thinking the big hack against the electoral grid and we, the electricity grid, and we forgot about the electoral system. Yeah. And in fact, when you look at the list that the Department of Homeland Security had of their 16 critical infrastructure uh, section, you know, there was a, you know, there's something for the utilities and there's something for the communication system, the Washington Monument, the um, uh, Jefferson Memorial, the Deep State Radio uh, studio here, but not the election system. Interesting. Corey? Wait, wait, wait. I just just need to correct my earlier meat world. It was meat space. It was William Gibson and his 1984 neuromancer uh, that... That was that was what he referred to what but, we call the physical which world, which is, is almost the Bible of nerddom. Indeed, by the way, indeed, um, Corey, we we so have I one have minute two, left. <laughs> we have one minute left, and so you get the final word here. Thank you, fearless leader. I have two quick things to add. The first is um, one other Ernie May book, which I think speaks to cyber. Uh, is his book on why the French uh, collapsed so quickly? in 1941. And and what he looks at is what the German military excelled in was taking other people's inventions and using them in unexpected ways. The blitzkrieg comes out of this. The second thing the Germans were brilliant at was intelligence on how the leadership of other countries would react to shocks. And, and I think about that every time I think about President Obama you know, thinking there are no costs to inaction and and the Russians reading him exactly right on election interference. So so everybody go read that Ernie May book, too. And the last thing I will say is that, David, I would please like my Team Rosa T-shirt, the one that says there are no problems with this. I would like it in a women's size small, please. And I want a women's cap, not just a men's cap. <laughs> I was just making Get- this point to David earlier. Today. Yeah, we need no. T-shirts that are in a women's cap. No, and we will certainly provide that. Um, Folks, we've come to the (laughs) end of the time for this particular episode. I want to say a couple of things. First of all, we did not intend this to be an episode to promote the books of Ernie May, <laughs> although it turned out. Although you should that, go by David Sanger's book, not right. Ernie David's May's book. book. And Ernie May. Well, that's fine, but we should like focus on David's book, *The Perfect Weapon*, um, which is a brilliant, really, really important book. 
probably the most important book written on this, one of the most important topics of the time. It's available on Amazon. Um, David will tell you this often on many radio and television and podcasts over the next couple of weeks as he promotes it. Um, But you know the real source is Deep State Radio, uh, and the book is infused with the kind of insights that you only get here on Deep State Radio. I thought you were going to say the kind of insults when you started that word. Uh, uh, no, that, that's not, those you, <laughs> he saves those. Those for are saved podcast. just for Deep State Radio. You want the insights? Read the book. You want the insults? Listen to the podcast. And <laughs> if you feel that you especially deserve a copy of David's book, we have a handful of them. And all you have to do is tweet at us the reason why you especially deserve it. This could be a variety of things. You could do a promotional uh, ad for the book, you know, and say, <laughs> look, here, I'm helping the book. Uh, you could explain why uh, you have a need for the book. You could explain. Like you're out of firewood, for example. Yeah. Right. Or, or you could launch your own offensive cyber attack against yeah. a foreign enemy. Or you could say David saying. David Sanger is, I believe, my father, and this, and I, I've got nothing from him. Please send me a book. You know, it could be almost anything. So, you know, tweet those out there, and over the next week we'll David, pick... Yes? David, when David Sanger's wife runs you down with her car, I'm going to take you to the hospital. This could have been before then. He was playing on that damn, we don't know what he was doing. Anyway, um... We will we will look at these, and in a week, on July 2nd, um, we will announce the winners for the... Of the Sanger sweepstakes. Of the Sanger sweepstakes, which is, is something that I hope all of you will participate in. In any event, thank and, you. And David is going to make up for the fact that the book contains no pictures by not only signing these books, but by drawing a picture draw, yeah, in I'll them. I'll draw pictures. He'll yeah. draw an electron. Um, uh, Corey, thank you very much. Rosa, thank you very much. David, thank you very much. And everybody, please come back and join us for the next episode of Deep State Radio. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.